Opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. Hello, everyone. We're back again. This is Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Summer. And this is part two of Israel Keys. And so if you are back again for this... Thanks for tuning in. You must be true crime junkies if you're back for part two. And if you have not heard part one, you need to listen to that first. Yes, otherwise... You're jumping way ahead. Yeah, and you're going to miss a lot of important stuff that we talk about. Yeah, so go back, listen to part one. But if you hear the trigger warnings and you can't listen to it, just skip part one and two and our next episode will be lighter. Okay, so should we... Let us jump right into what is the most awful serial killer that we know of right now. We left off at Keys leaving on that cruise after he had tortured, raped, and murdered Samantha Koenig. So picking up from that part, when the manager of Common Grounds arrived in the morning, she did not suspect anything strange at first because her employees would sometimes have what she called off nights and leave things undone. Samantha's worried dad called shortly after they opened the coffee stand and the security cameras were viewed from the prior night. It was apparent from the video that someone had abducted Samantha. The Anchorage police were immediately notified and initially Tortolani was a suspect. Then on February 3rd, the Anchorage police announced that they believed Samantha was abducted at gunpoint from the coffee shop, so after further surveillance of video. Since her abduction, over a foot of snow had fallen, which would make it very hard to search the crime scene. James, with the help of volunteers, passed out over 7,000 flyers with his daughter's picture and the word kidnapped typed at the top. James announced a $12,500 reward through the media to whoever had taken his daughter. On February 16, 2012, Keyes drives out of Dallas, Texas, with the intention to rob a bank. He decides to create a distraction by burning down a home in close enough proximity to the bank he chose to rob so that it would pull attention from fire and police personnel away from the bank's location. After starting the fire in the home, he also caught the barn on fire that was on the property. In town, he wears a hard hat with hair taped to the inside and a respirator mask and goes inside the bank and robs them. On February 18, 2012, Keyes flies back to Anchorage, Alaska and checks on Samantha's body. He waits until Monday when his daughter went back to school to pull Samantha's body out from the shed's cabinet. The doors were frozen shut to the cabinet, so he had to take them completely off. The stab wound from her back had bled through the fleece sleeping bag and out the top of the tarp she was wrapped in and stained the wood floor. So he took out those boards to burn them later. He also burned the sleeping bag, her clothes, and the tarp. He bleached the shed's floor and then put a 15 by 20 piece of plastic on the floor and put a table on the plastic. After thawing out Samantha's body, he put it on the table and secured her arms over her head with ropes and secured the ropes to the walls of the shed with screws. He then had sex with her corpse. He left her body on the table and over the next few days, he would pick up various items at the stores. 
a Polaroid camera, some makeup that he thought would match what Samantha had in her purse, sewing needles, and fishing line. He also picked up some discarded newspapers. He braided Samantha's hair and used two or three tubes of foundation to cover up the bruises on her face and tried to put color back into it. He used the needle and fishing line to sew between her eyebrows and then down along the nose cartilage and then back up the same way to try and give her face an expression. He laid her naked on the mattress and took several pictures of her while he held up the newspaper and made sure to not let too much of his arm into the photo just in case the police could identify him by a mole or some other detail. He wrote out a ransom note asking for $30,000 and placed it in a plastic bag with one of the photos. And here's just a side note. There is a photo that has been going around the internet for a long time, which claims it is the actual ransom photo of Samantha, but it's not the real photo. It's an actress and it's from some docu-series on keys. The real photo was never leaked to the public. I never knew that because I, I remember seeing that photo online. I thought it was real at first too when I first heard about Keys and was looking into him. It's actually I think a good thing that that real photo is not out there. Imagine how triggering and traumatic that would be for the family. Oh yeah. I'm glad that's not a real photo and that it hasn't been leaked. Right. So if you do look up information about the Samantha Koenig murder and you come across that photo that's not her. That's not the ransom photo. Let's back, kind of backtrack and sure. talk about what he did. You know, he went through all of that effort. She was already dead at that point. Mm-hmm. And this is when he came back from vacation, right? Yes. So he came back from vacation, took this photo for ransom to make it seem like she was still alive. It's like he wants to pull as much as he can from these people. And even though she's gone, he's still torturing her family. And it's like whatever he can get from his victims, he will. He just wants to just take everything from them. Yeah, it could have ended. Yeah. He already did something so horrible. She's she's already dead. But he prolongs this. He keeps it going. Yes. And- for what? Is he really after the money or is he after the, you know, It's a thrill. He suffering. Gets, suffering gives him a thrill. And I think he thinks he is above everything and he's not going to get caught. And so he just wants to keep things going. Yeah, I can totally see him having like a God complex for sure. Easily does. Yes. On February 24th, he drove to a local park and placed the ransom note and photo underneath a missing dog flyer that said, please find Albert. Then he drove back home and drove his girlfriend and her friends around that evening while they bar hopped. Using Samantha's cell phone the next day, he sent a ransom text to her boyfriend while away from his home that said, Connor Park sign under pick of Albert. Ain't she purdy? Is he trying He's to disgusting. be He's like... He's disgusting. He really is. I mean, we can't say it enough how awful he is. He then removed the cell phone's battery and drove back home. Tortolani received the text and immediately he and James headed to the park and found the flyer. They immediately notified the police and were sure to not touch the bag so that the police could look at it. The police found a picture of Samantha and a long typed out message that talked about putting $30,000 into Samantha's bank account. Curious, Keyes drove back by the park a few hours after he had sent the text to Tortolani. He noticed a crime scene van there and continued to pass by the scene a couple of times before heading back home. So again, this is just giving him a thrill, just torturing people still. Yep, that's what he's after. Realizing that Samantha's body was beginning to smell from decomposition and that it may alert the neighbors if he kept her in the shed, he decided to cut it up. He covered the floor and walls of the shed with 
polyethylene sheeting. He used a utility knife for the majority of the cuts and then used a battery-powered sawzall for the bigger cuts. He triple-bagged each bundle of dismembered body parts and left them in the shed, deciding to drive 35 miles north of Anchorage to Manasuka Lake, where over the course of three trips, he would dispose of Samantha's body in a fishing hole he drilled. He checked the depth of the water with a weight and twine. The bottom of the lake was 40 feet. He constructed a fishing shack over the hole and then deconstructed it due to a fisherman that was watching him on the lake. He covered the hole with plywood so that it wouldn't freeze overnight. The next day, he returned to the lake with Samantha's legs, head, and arms in the bag. He put the fishing shack back up and removed the body parts from the bag one at a time and wrapped fishing weights around them so that they would sink. And then he dropped them into the hole in the ice. Then he started a small fire and fished in the same fishing hole. Wow. He's just disgusting. Yeah. Uh, He disposes of the body parts and then proceeds to go fishing. There's his double life right there. He he can can just switch it on and off. Yep. That's what I was about to say. Turn it on, turn it off. Like, in an instant. Completely a double life. Would we consider him a psychopath? Yes. Okay. Or a sociopath. I don't know. Both. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I think Yeah, because he can interact with people on a normal level, too. Uh So Narcissism. He has everything. Yeah. If it's bad, he has it. On the third trip, he brought Samantha's torso and placed it in the hole in the ice and then fished again. When he was done fishing, he took down the fishing shack and covered up the hole with ice. On February 26th, Keyes drove to an ATM and used Samantha's debit card to see if the ransom money had been deposited into her account. He attempted to withdraw $600, but it was declined due to the daily max withdrawal amount of $300. He then went to another ATM and withdrew $500 there. Then, a half hour later, he withdrew another $500 from another bank's ATM. Becoming more brazen, he would comment on public news forums regarding the case. So he's watching the case and going onto these public sites where they're talking about, you know, not knowing where this girl is and what could have happened and just, you know, kind of poking fun at police. So he's trolling. He's trolling his own crime. Wow. I did not. I mean, I knew he was arrogant. I didn't know this part that he was following it, making comments and just being so involved. How freaking arrogant is this guy? God. So again, this is him out of control. He's starting to, well, the start of it when he takes Samantha is totally against all of his rules, quote unquote. So this is just another thing. He's starting to lose control and not follow what his usual pattern is. And I wonder what it is. I wonder like what made him kind of unravel. He doesn't know. He thinks it was just that instant. He just lost control or maybe it escalated over the years. Who knows? Maybe he got bored and like wanted yeah, to bigger thrills that's that's a possibility too and like, wanted to be more involved huh could be okay yeah. but taking different risks yeah like the thrill wasn't exciting enough so he had to take it to that next level and bring it close to home so it was even more exciting for him i can see that march of 2012 he flies out to arizona runs a 2012 white ford focus and uses samantha's debit card at an atm to withdraw 400 dollars. then he withdraws another 400 dollars at an atm in arizona he wore a hoodie and a halloween mask so that his face would not be shown One of the banks had a wider security camera angle than Keyes may have thought, though, because it caught him driving away in the white Ford Focus. Police in the area were sent a bolo, and for anyone who doesn't know what a bolo is, it's a be on the lookout. So Mm -hmm. they were sent a bolo for the 2012 Ford Focus. 
but a couple of days later, Keyes returns to the Avis rental to exchange his vehicle for another one. Due to the lack of inventory, or whatever it was, he got the same make and model of car, and it was also white. I'm so glad. It sounds Me like his, his luck is running out. Yes, it is. It's catching up to him. On March 11th, he withdrew more money from an ATM near Houston, Texas, and visited over the next couple of days with family and attended his sister's wedding. March 13th, 2012, at 7.30 a.m., Corporal Brian Henry, actively searching for the rental car after receiving the Bolo, spots the white Ford Focus in a parking lot of the motel where Keyes was staying while in Texas. He ran the plate and called for backup. The FBI came to the motel and spoke to the front desk and took up surveillance on the room where Keyes was staying. After Keyes packed up his stuff into the car and drove off, they followed him but did not have cause to pull him over until Keyes went three miles over the speed limit. Corporal Henry turned on his lights and pulled Keyes over. Henry noticed that the license was from Alaska and questioned Keyes about why he was in the area. Keyes was initially pleasant to Henry, but then started to get agitated and started sweating profusely. <laughs> Confident that Keyes' rental car was the one in the ATM surveillance videos and that he matched the description of the man at the ATM, Henry handcuffed Keyes and put him into the patrol car. While searching the rental car, police found a gun, a dye-stained roll of bills from a bank robbery, the mask keys wore while withdrawing money from the ATMs, and Samantha Koenig's debit card and cell phone. Keys was taken into custody, and a search warrant was obtained for Keys's home in Anchorage. An APD SWAT team seized the following items from his home, a trailer that he used for his business, a photo of Bill and Lorraine Courier, and a newspaper article about their disappearance was saved on his computer. I'm so happy at this point that he's finally caught. Yes. God, he's gotten away with so Finally many. slips up all of his life. He was able to commit these awful murders. And how old is he at this point? He's 33 or 34. Wow. I'm so glad that they finally caught him and he slipped up. I wonder why he kept a photo of Bill and Lorraine, though, and not something from his other crimes, like other trophies, because isn't that something serial killers usually do, keep trophies from their murders? Yeah, you do wonder why he only had a photo of their murder. At least he did that, because then they could link that crime together. Right, exactly. He didn't have anything of Samantha, so it is strange. He only had... He just had the debit card. Um, He had the debit card, but, you know, that's more for money purposes. He only had a photo of the killing of Lorraine and Bill. And a newspaper article about them. So that is strange why only that one. Right. I wonder why. Maybe he was starting to slip up then. After? Bill and Lorraine by keeping I mean, it did seem from the crime. Well, that is like the first one that's out of his, well, no, he, not true. Yeah, yeah. They were still random and everything was away from his home. He used rental cars. He didn't use his own car for the actual transporting of the victims, but he kept something from that crime. So So maybe maybe that's where he starts to lose a little control and want a bigger rush or wants to look back on these. Yeah. While being interrogated, he refused to give any info on Samantha. At this time, her family still thought she was just missing and could be alive. The FBI questioned Tammy for hours and asked her what she thought were strange questions, such as, can Israel braid hair? And obviously they were trying to see about the ransom photo to link him to Samantha's Samantha's abduction. So that's why they asked strange questions. At that point, she didn't know, right? No, she had no idea. His entire circle was shocked. 
here it is again, living his double life. Nobody would have guessed, which is just so crazy to me. He was really good at switching it on and off Mm -hmm. and planning. On March 14th, 2012, the FBI directed the filing of a criminal complaint in the U.S. District Court of Alaska, which alleged the federal crime of access device fraud against keys. And access device fraud is using a credit card, debit card, fraudulently. The next day, Keyes appeared in court in Texas and waived his rights so that he could be transferred to Alaska to await trial. Then on March 22nd, 2012, Alaska's federal grand jury returned an indictment for one count of access device fraud. March March 26th of 2012, federal marshals delivered Keyes to a jail in Anchorage, Alaska. The next day, Keyes appeared before a judge on the count of access device fraud and entered a plea of not guilty to pilfering a bank account with a stolen debit card. He showed no emotion and told the judge he could not afford his own attorney, so a public defender was appointed. I bet that public defender was pissed. (laughs) I have to represent this guy. There's so many great public defenders that are passionate about their jobs. But if you get this guy, this terrible piece of trash. How do you even, (laughs) where do you even start that poor public defender? The police and family were still searching for Samantha during this time, not knowing if she was alive or dead. Finally, on March 31st, Keyes talked. He met with investigators of the U.S. Attorney's Office. He told the police how he had abducted Samantha from the coffee shop and taken her to the shed and then obtained her debit card. But when they pressed him about whether or not she was alive when he left Alaska to go to Texas, he got quiet. He told the investigators that he would tell them everything about the murder, but didn't want to see his name publicly linked to it and wouldn't tell them anymore that day. He also said that he had lots of stories to tell. Oh, it's like he's gossiping. Mm -hmm. Before they took him out of the room, they asked if he was responsible for any other murders. He teased them and said he couldn't talk about that right now. Keyes told the investigators, there is no one who knows me or who has ever known me who knows anything about me, really. They're going to tell you something that does not line up with anything I tell you because I'm two different people, basically. There it is. There, yeah, so he admits to it right there. He's two different people, and he has the side of him that commits these terrible murders and the side of him that is the family guy that owns a small business and the neighbors know is just... He's very self-aware of this. I mean, he, is. he knows that he puts on two different acts and people will be surprised. And it sounds like he's also withholding information, playing a game with the police at this point. He's completely playing a game because he wants the information to be released when he's ready and he wants them to hear only the parts that he feels make him look a certain way. He wants to be in control of this story or this narrative for sure. He does. So on March 1st, 2012, several investigators were present the next day during Keyes' confession. He told them he didn't want any of this information in the media. He clearly wanted to control the police, as we said, and the flow of information to the news outlets. He began telling them about how he had dismembered Samantha and put her in the fishing hole. He gave them directions on where they could search to locate her remains. Then on April 2nd, Samantha's body was recovered. Her father was contacted and said that even though he at least had her back to put her to rest, he would never find closure. The family also spoke to the media and thanked the public for all of their support and the effort put into finding Samantha. That day, Keyes met with the investigators again in the interview room and expressed how frustrated he was with his court-appointed attorney. Keyes wanted the process to go quickly and felt like things were taking too long. 
He had an agenda and he wanted things done within a year and he wanted the death penalty. He said he accepted his fate and was ready for it and wanted everything wrapped up in 12 months. He told investigators that he would give them whatever gory details they wanted, but it needed to be over in that time frame. The investigators said they would work on it, but needed something more from Keyes. And Keyes said he would give them two more bodies. He asked for a cigar and access to Google Maps. When they asked what area he needed, he told them Burlington, Vermont. Once he received the map, he pointed out the area of the crime and told them two names, Bill and Lorraine Courier. When the investigator asked him why he picked these two people, Keyes got agitated and said he just picked them randomly. He acted, I guess, annoyed. They should have known that? Right, like they should have known or he just was annoyed that they asked that question. And then he added that they were in big black trash bags, probably skeletal by now. And again, in his cocky, smarmy, smirky, disgusting way. He was trying to get a reaction out of people, and that was his way to do it. But if they asked him something he didn't want to talk about, then he got agitated. It seems like he just wants to tell them what he wants to tell them. Like, why are you asking me more questions? I gave you details. Yeah, why are you asking me that question? I don't want to answer that. On April 8th, Samantha's family gathered together as her remains were cremated, and then they went outside to watch the sunrise. Later that day, Tortolani posted a final goodbye to his girlfriend. Samantha Koenig, love of my life, I will never forget you, and I will love you till the day that I die and am able to come be with you again. I'll see you in a little bit, baby, always and forever. Oh, that's that makes so heartbreaking. So, yeah. And her dad, I mean, that was his only child, I believe. And he raised her pretty much by himself. That connection with her was very strong. And this heartbroken. Yes. <laughs> How can you ever replace that? You can't. You can't. And that's what he said, too. He said he'll never find closure. What Israel Keys did was just horrific. And how do you even find peace after that when yeah. you know something so horrible happened? Well, that day, Detective Murdy investigated the site the FBI had told him Keyes said was where the couriers were killed. The farmhouse had been demolished, though, so Murdy contacted the demolition crew and they told him that the debris had been taken away in a truck to a landfill in Coventry, Vermont. The excavator told him that he noticed an awful smell when they punched through the floors revealing the basement in the farmhouse. But he just thought it might have been a dead animal and didn't investigate it. He also remembers seeing large black trash bags through the hole in the floor and a burned area. He avoided the basement since it smelled so terrible. Murdy and his team met with the FBI about the case. A little while later that day, he was contacted by the FBI and was told that they would be taking over the case. Murdy has said that he was not happy about that because obviously he really wanted to keep investigating. But once the FBI says... It's now federal. Yeah. Do we think that the demolition of the house was planned or? No, he says it was not. So keep listening. Okay. <laughs> April 10th, 2012, the FBI contacted Murdy to advise of the basic details of the Koenig case and that Keyes wanted to be executed as quickly as possible. So he gave information on the Courier case only after he found out that he could not receive the death penalty in Alaska. Keyes said that if he heard his name in the media, he wouldn't give them any further information. When investigators told Keyes that the farmhouse where he had hidden the Courier's bodies had been demolished, Keyes laughed and replied, well, I guess I spoke too soon on that one. I figured they'd be found pretty soon, but I didn't know it had been been demolished. So he had no idea it was going to be demolished. Oh. He actually thought the body parts would eventually be found. I'm so frustrated. There was his luck. I know. He has a lot of it for a long time, but not anymore. 
Investigators pressed Keyes for information on the kill kits he said he used to commit his crimes. He said, if I tell you that, I will never be able to use them again. What does he think uh, he's getting out to he, be able to use them he again? He does. You know, what a, of course he does. Just, he just thinks he's got it made right now. For all his life, he's had this luck avoiding accountability. So he probably thinks... Like, I'm going to get out of this. Right. Keyes said that he enjoyed the thrill of leading two separate lives and that he would meticulously plan out his murders before committing them. He also told the investigators that prior to Samantha Koenig's murder, he had always followed his quote-unquote rules and kept his crimes far away from his home and never transported victims in his vehicle. But for some reason, he lost control when he saw her alone in the coffee shop. He's also described how he had researched and read about Ted Bundy, his favorite serial killer, but also that he was interested and read up on many other serial killers because he recognized that sameness. There he is reading about them and knowing I'm like this. I can relate to this. And so, yeah, he's trying to maybe take a little bit of everyone that he reads about. And he probably kind of liked reading about himself. Think about it. Like he's essentially reading about how he feels and, and his lifestyle. Yeah, he's such a narcissist. And he so. can't share it with anybody. So he's relating to this. Yes. He was clear that he never patterned himself after another serial killer and didn't want to be categorized as one, even though he hinted to the investigators that he had murdered around 11 people. So he doesn't want to be known as a serial killer, but one. he identifies as one. So whatever. He just doesn't want that title. For whatever reason. I don't know why. Because he's stupid. <laughs> stupid. <laughs> Oh, April 17th, 2012, the U.S. Attorney's Office for Alaska filed a superseding grand jury indictment against Keyes in federal court. The indictment added two new counts, kidnapping resulting in death and receipt and possession of ransom money. The original charge of fraud with access device remained. April 18th, FBI agents conducted a search which recovered the kill kit that Keyes had previously buried in Vermont and contained a 22 caliber Ruger wires, empty magazines, ammunition, and a silencer. On April 19th, Keyes appeared with his public defender in court and pleads not guilty. Mm. <sighs> and at this point, I'm sure he's still thinking he's getting away with it. Well, he talks about just wanting everything to be over and done with. It's just whatever he wants. Yeah, whatever he's feeling. Whatever like he's he, feeling. He really wants the death penalty. And then they inform him that he's not getting he's that. He's not getting that in Alaska. Right. So then on May 23rd of 2012, Keyes appeared with his defense attorneys in federal court at the request of his attorneys. So the attorneys could state that they would need two years to review the voluminous amount of investigation investigative materials that was produced during discovery. The assistant DA countered that they should be able to get through the material since a lot of it was just false leads and easy to sort through, and they pushed for a trial date just 10 months out instead of the two years requested by the defense. While his counsel was speaking to the judge, he's managed to pull off the chain from one of his ankle cuffs and jumped over the railing into the first row of seats in the courtroom gallery. Oh my God. Five deputies quickly tackled keys and one used a taser to subdue him. After his escape attempt, additional security measures were put into place. He had to wear full restraints every time he left his cell and two guards were required to accompany him. Additionally, the cell next to his would be kept empty so that he could not get help from a neighboring inmate. 
fact, two days later, he was brought back into the courtroom. Judge Timothy Burgess took the bench and advised Keyes that any additional escape attempts would result with him being fitted with additional shackles and a gag, or even Keyes watching the proceedings from his jail cell. Keyes responded, stating that he understood. At the hearing, Keyes requested that his trial be moved up to as soon as possible. So do you think then he was planning on escaping and that's why he pled not guilty? Because he's thinking, I have a chance to escape, so I'm going to get out of this. Yeah, he definitely, I think. He was in that, that mindset? Point, yep. I do too. Yeah, he would have been on the run. Probably he knew where all his kill kits were. Oh yeah, he was a survivalist. He was, yep. So I can totally see that. And I'm glad that they took like those precautions. <laughs> they, they handled him. Yeah. <laughs> During his next interview with investigators, Keyes joked with them about the taser, and he stated something like, oh, it just remind me of one of those electrical ab machines, or, and he said he still didn't want to see his name in the media and just wanted his daughter to be able to live a normal life. Keyes got more and more agitated with the investigators as he found out that he may not receive the death penalty. He said that he felt he was lied to. Good. Poor baby. I oh, know. No. You were lied to? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that is like the worst thing that's happened to you. Right. Like, right. Compared who, to like everything else that's happened to yeah. your victims. Right. Who cares what he did to these people? He was lied to. I know. Dear. Please. <laughs> over yourself. Right. <laughs> so over the course of the next eight months, investigators would meet with Keys and obtain over 40 hours of interviews. These interviews are online. You can watch them. Don't waste your time. You can waste your time if you want, but he's just annoying. And a lot of time he's just sitting there being his sarcastic, usual sarcastic, like... just annoying self. So you can watch them if you want, but you've been warned. That'll be 40 hours of your life you'll never get back. Yeah, you'll just be annoyed. So during those interviews, he would give them only pieces of what he wanted to talk about regarding the crimes he had committed, which included arson, bank robberies, rape, murder, attempted abductions, and attempted murders that were interrupted. But even with so many hours of interviews with Keyes, no further victims were able to be identified because Keyes enjoyed toying with the investigators and being very general with the information he did give them regarding any other murders. He spent a lot of his time talking about his disappointment in the speed at which the judicial process was moving and his distrust in his counsel. Oh, oh boo-hoo for him. So <laughs> sad. Like, it's not moving fast <laughs> enough and I don't like my attorney. Right. Holy Who cares? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> his increasing frustration with his case and with the information that was now being delivered to the public became too much for him to handle. And on December 1st, 2012, Keyes was found dead in his cell. He had slid his wrists and had a bed sheet tied around his neck. He left a long-winded suicide note for the police, which we won't read, but again, you can find it online. He just tries to be poetic and yeah, we underwhelmed. Don't, we don't need to waste our time on We're not his last words. Nope. He's just a monster. Because I'm sure they weren't of remorse. I'm sure they were just him, you know. It's self-glorifying. It's just stupid. The memoirs. <laughs> or <laughs> Nobody cares. <laughs> the only people at his funeral service were his mother, four sisters, and three brothers-in-law. The pastor gave what was described as a scathing sermon, emphasizing that Keyes would suffer in hell for all eternity for his wicked acts, which I love this because he hated religion. Yep. And at the end, here they are. He's being talked about in a church by a pastor and how he'll be suffering in hell. It just makes sense. <laughs> It definitely came around full circle. We're laughing at Keys right now because he's just terrible. He is, and he deserves 
He's the worst. Right. It's something he would not have wanted. He would have been very upset about it. So that makes it great. We approve of that. Yeah. Here is a summary on what the FBI discovered about Keyes and his victims. They ended up recovering only two of many kill kits he claims to have buried across the states, one from New Jersey and one from Vermont. He said that he would frequent remote locations looking for his victims and also frequented prostitutes during his travels across the country and overseas. It is thought that Keyes killed 11 people. His victims' disappearances received very little or even no media coverage until the courier's disappearance. He did not know his victims, and they ranged in age from late teens to the elderly and were both male and female. He stated his murders occurred in less than 10 states, but did not specify all of the locations. He crossed into multiple states for the abduction, murder, and disposal of his victims. He admitted to burglarizing 20 to 30 homes and committing arson to cover up a homicide. Keyes references a victim with pale skin that was driving an older car at the time of her abduction and a victim whose body he had staged so that it would appear she died of natural causes. The FBI is still looking into cases today and trying to find his other victims. But he only admits to 11. He doesn't even admit to 11. He alludes to it because he says something along the lines of less than 12. And so one of the FBI profilers said, well, maybe he's just saying 11 without saying 11. Because that's how he that's answers how he, questions. He just, right, he's just toying with them. So he's like, well, it's less than 12, but he's not going to give them it. But he probably wants that credit for committing those murders. So they're thinking it's 11. Yeah. Unfortunately, they've only identified four of the victims. No, just the couriers and Samantha. And they do think Deborah Feldman was one of his victims as well. But again, they don't have her body. They're just going off of when he was in the area and when she went missing. And it just seemed to fit. That could mean multiple unidentified victims that we just don't know about and just haven't discovered yet. And unfortunately, or I mean, you know, we don't have his confessions on who these people are and where they are and what happened to them. Right, because when he was done, he decided, oh, I'm just going to kill myself without giving them any more information. I hope they can still uh, somehow find out who these victims are at some point. You know, and sometimes, as we know, they can, so hopefully they will. So his only confirmed victims were Bill, 49 years old, and Lorraine, 55 years old. They were married in 1985. Bill joined the Army straight out of high school and served as a military fireman, radio operator, and forward observer. He served four years of active duty, followed by two years as a reservist. He received an honorable discharge in 1996. Bill and Lorraine bought their Essex Junction, Vermont home in 2003. Both Bill and Lorraine's co-workers described them as responsible and hardworking people. Bill was quiet, and Lorraine and Bill had exotic birds as pets. Bill and Lorraine were described also as having a loving relationship, and they always carpooled to work, which I think is so cute. That is cute. Aww. They sounded like such a sweet couple. I know. They, they were, you know, just living their lives and being productive in society and being good people. And of all of his crimes, the chances of this happening to somebody is so, so remote. It's like less than 1% or something, according to the FBI. It's just so sad. Yeah. Samantha, his other confirmed victim, was a bubbly, beautiful girl that struggled with the usual insecurities that young women deal with, but had a good heart and was a wonderful, kind person that was very close to her father because he raised her as a single dad. She loved camping, four-wheeling, as well as music and writing. She played the clarinet in high school for two years and had a passion for animals. Described by her dad as a tomboy with a witty sense of humor, she enjoyed her life. 
And Samantha's dad did create a Facebook site in honor of his daughter, and it seeks to help find missing children. It's called Seeking Alaska's Missing, or SAM, Sam. So that's his way of keeping his daughter's memory alive and helping other families. And so I think that's so wonderful that he did that. It really is. It really is. And it just, all of it's so heartbreaking. You know, these innocent victims just had no idea this would happen to them. He's one of the worst serial killers I've read about and annoying too. Don't you find him just particularly self-absorbed? Yes. And And he just, just makes me so frustrated. And the way he plays around with the police and... But he's also a coward too. He doesn't even want to own up to everything and he doesn't want the media to know that he's a serial killer. But he doesn't even want to be known as a serial killer. Right. I don't understand any of it, but he is particularly shocking and annoying to me yeah i remember the first time like hearing about his case it was just i was shocked because you don't hear a lot about him he's not on the radar like a ted bundy or a jeffrey dahmer and usually his crimes were so planned they were i think that's kind of out of the ordinary because usually serial killers they it's more impulsive huh yeah so even though he was impulsive he definitely planned ahead the Barry kill kits years ahead of his crimes smarmy sicko i'm glad that he's dealt with he had to strangle himself i just hope it was awful for him i hope so um (laughs) i mean mean, yeah he had no regard for any human life except for his daughters but he didn't care for anyone else's and so and how scary to go back um as far as like his girlfriends or people he was in a relationship with or family members to realize like oh my god like that's this, who he was, right? This person did these horrible things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, neither of them, Sammy, the mother of his daughter and his girlfriend, they were not at his funeral. Gosh, yeah. How do you even, like, want to associate someone like that? Right. So it was really hard on Tammy, too, of course. And that's her child's biological father. Yeah. So she has to deal with all of that happening, plus then one day talking to her daughter about what he did. Yeah. I guess how old is her daughter, their daughter now? Maybe around her early 20s. I can't imagine like how shocking it is for her to think about that and process that. Yeah. We hope nothing but the best for, for her. her. Right. She's, She's a know. victim too. Yep. Well, that's that's part two. <laughs> how do you end that one? Yeah. Like... That's, so that's Israel Keys. And we know that was two heavy episodes. So uh, our next episode, we'll definitely go with something lighter. Yes. Uh, I think we're going to cover Heaven's Gate. Ooh. If you, I mean, that'll be our first cult episode if you are familiar with Heaven's Gate. Because this happened in the late 90s in California where I used to live. Yeah, and you said you've never heard of it. I don't remember it. I'm sure it was on the news or something, but I didn't really watch the news a lot back then. But I was starting to get into the true crime. What was it, 2020 and Unsolved Mysteries on TV? But yeah, I don't remember a lot about that. Well, don't worry. We will. uh, You're going to fill us in. I will definitely give you the details. I'm excited about that. It, you know, it's still kind of a strange story, but it'll be lighter than this. Definitely. I don't know when we'll do another serial killer, but we're still trying to give you episodes that are not something you've heard before. So we're sticking with the more obscure things. Yeah. If you have any ideas, any um, topics you would like us to cover, send us an email at freshlybrewednoir at gmail.com. And follow us on our socials. We are at Freshly Brewed Noir on Instagram and Facebook. Give us a review. Rate us five stars. Nothing less, please. Just five stars. Just only five. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you keep listening. Stay caffeinated. And we will see you next time. Yes. And stay out of the woods. 
yes, stay out of the woods. Carry mace. Be safe. Just be careful. That's right. And continue to listen to our podcast. Yes. <laughs> we appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye.